Hi, everyone. I'm Dr. Jillian Murphy, a naturopath, speaker, educator, and coach, and this is Food Freedom Body Love, a podcast I put together to help you make peace with food, body image, and weight so you can kick your all-consuming, exhausting weight control food obsession habits and start living your best, healthiest life. You guys, we are back and today we're switching gears. The previous six episodes of this series have been dedicated to health conditions that predominantly affect adults. But as you know, if you've been listening to the podcast for a while, my work also focuses on kids. And so I didn't want to leave kids out of this series. It's just too important. Um, So many of the negative behaviors and the pieces of the negative relationships that we have with food actually start when we're kids. And so, um, you know, we have this opportunity if we are parents or caregivers or grandparents of young children to do things differently with them. And that's what this little bonus section of the series is all about. It's a three-part bonus and we will be talking about kids and weight We will be talking about feeding neurodiverse children with a trust model, some of the challenges and the benefits there. And then I'm also going to be talking um, with my friend and colleague out of Singapore, who's doing a lot of work on nutrition in schools and the education that our children are getting, how we can be more aware of the lessons that they're getting at school, how we could be advocating for education, nutrition education in schools to be different, um, and how we can start to sort of balance out some of the more negative aspects of nutritional education at home. But today, today we are going to kick off this little three-part bonus with the seventh episode of Beyond Weight, focused on kids' weight and health. And today I'm talking with Rebecca Hernandez. She is a licensed nutrition and dietitian with a master's in eating disorders and obesity from the Universidad Europea de Madrid. I hope I'm saying that correct. It is Spanish and I do not speak Spanish. Rebecca works and lives in San Jose, Costa Rica, having experienced firsthand Ellen Satter's message of When the joy goes out of eating, nutrition suffers. She has been focused on helping adults and children find this joy in eating and life. She is most passionate about working one-on-one, so her work is focused on private counseling based on the sadder feeding dynamics and eating competence models. She's developed special programs for parents in Costa Rica, working with psychologists who share the vision of feeding with love and respect. Besides her practice, she delivers regular workshops and is starting an intensive program for counseling parents in recovering their joy of eating and feeding. Um, Rebecca is lovely. She's intelligent. She's well-spoken. And she's just so incredibly passionate about the work that she does. I think you are going to really love this episode. So let's go. Hi, Rebecca. Hello, Jillian. Thank you so much for being on the show today and coming on to talk about weight and growth and children. For those listening, um, 
I was first introduced to Rebecca and her work. Rebecca is in Costa Rica. And I was introduced to her through the affiliate program with Ellen Satter. And Rebecca really managed a lot of that affiliate program and did a lot of teaching for us within that. So I got some exposure to her and was really excited to have her come on the show to talk with us about kids and weight and growth. So Rebecca, could you tell us a little bit about the work that you do, how you got into this work, and specifically how you got into using a trust model? Well, thank you, Julian, for having me. You know, this is very exciting for me. I love talking about this. So a little bit about myself. I started working as a traditional dietitian at a really big nutrition place here in my country. So I was packed the whole week taking people in and I started getting a lot of moms that they were coming for their children with typical complaints. My child's not eating yeah, or my child is eating too much. And soon I realized that what the tools that I had were not enough and were not helping me or helping these moms. I didn't know. I mean, I knew about nutrition, but I didn't know anything about how children, and how human beings <laughs> behave around food and how we learn to eat and all of that stuff. So I started reading and thank heavens I found Ellen. Thank Ellen heavens. Satter. I say it all the time. <laughs> yes. Really early on. I like, I started working in January and I found her really, really fast. <laughs> so I started reading everything about her. And I started, well, you know, when you start working as a traditional dietitian, that part, when you read, so I'm not supposed to tell them what to eat. Right. It's kind of shocking. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it was really like, I understood everything, but part of me was like, well, a mom is coming here for me to tell her what to eat and what to give to her child. How am I supposed to make amends with this? But slowly it started shifting my practice and all of a sudden I realized this is great. I'm not telling anybody what to eat anymore. Yeah. You know, what's interesting is that I'm only about, you know, as we're recording, I'm about halfway through recording this podcast series called Beyond Weight on health and, you know, looking at health beyond weight and food restriction and shame. And what's so interesting is that has come up almost every time. Like when I sort of say, how did you get into this? It's that. I started working with human beings and I started realizing exactly. that the relationship with food was so major and I didn't, my education had never prepared me to work with that. Right. And yes. so it sounds like in Costa Rica, it sounds like the conventional traditional approach to dietetics it's, and nutrition is the same. It's like, this is what to eat. This is what to eat. This is what to eat. Exactly. Well, as part of my bachelor's degree, I went to San Diego state too. I wasn't San oh, Diego. Did. Yes. Um, it was kind of different from here. I found that the teachers in the U.S. were a bit more trusting than the teachers here. Oh, really? So even yes. less trusting, it is, more, more control? Even worse here, more controlling and less trust. As Ellen says, it's a deficit model. Can you talk more what about I have, that? I think people would really love to hear more about this idea. I like how Ellen explains this um, like this. Uh, it's a deficit model, okay? Um, traditional diet approach comes from a deficit that our body, our bodies are wrong. Right. And that we are incapable of knowing 
how much to eat, what to eat, and when to eat, which is something basic for survival that any other species can do. <laughs> right. So what Ellen proposes is the competence model. As you know, her model is called eating competence. We are completely competent of eating well when we are allowed to do so, when we trust ourselves, and when we trust our nature instead of going against it. And that is the most beautiful thing <laughs> it is. that it really I is. have learned and that I have find that yeah. our bodies are perfect yeah. the way they are. And we were made perfect to know how much to eat, even what. It's not like we're going to die from eating chocolate in a week. Mm -hmm. Like when I tell people just eat what seems good to you, they're like, okay, I'll die by Friday if you Tell me to eat what I want because right now I only want chocolate or I only want, I don't know, like pastries and all that stuff. And when we listen to ourselves, we realize that, yes, sometimes we want pastries, but sometimes we want broccoli for lunch too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we yeah, it's interesting because it, when I say that, eat whatever you want. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure it's, I, I know it's exactly the same with you. When you say that to people, they immediately think that you just mean eat sugary, fat, fatty, processed foods. <laughs> and what I mean is like, I no, know. really eat whatever you want. And that could be a sugary, processed, fatty thing. It could be a salad. It could be soup. Oh, it could be a combination of all of them, you know? Um, but because those things have been so off limits, they're the things that automatically pop to mind because they're the things that are exactly. so- Like we are excessively preoccupied and obsessed with those things. Our nature is perfect when we don't interfere. When we start interfering and you go, okay, I cannot eat chocolate. I, oh my God, I want chocolate so much. Then you cannot think clearly. And mm -hmm. plus, if you're starving yourself, you're not going to go for the lettuce. <laughs> right, right. If you're Absolutely. starving yourself and you lift that restriction, obviously the first thing you're going to crave is bread, mm -hmm. fats, chocolate, because those mm -hmm. are the calories that your body needs. And that's not your body being defective. I always tell people that's your body surviving. Right, being <laughs> super lettuce effective. Lettuce doesn't actually. make sense when you're starving. <laughs> yeah, I love it. And, um, and it's so, amazing. Yeah, I'm sorry, I wasn't gonna say it's amazing when you think about it that way. <laughs> yeah, I love that. I love that. And um, can you talk a little bit about? Because I think that, I mean, you and I both, obviously, because we were, we're studying with Ellen, we've gone beyond reading the books and we're like fangirling with, you know, we, we're, we're learning from the master. But I think for a lot of parents, um, you know, they start to engage in that interference and that control typically out of fear at some point along the way. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about like some of the issues with the conventional beliefs and approach to nutrition and weight and growth management with kids that starts to get parents that encourages parents to interfere like what are some of those fundamental beliefs that you're like I just don't buy into this anymore and I'm not doing it because it sets people on the wrong track okay um as you said Jillian everything starts from fear I believe um the main issue is that we have come to pathologize normal growth and it's normal for some of us to be bigger and for some of us to be smaller. So everything comes from fear. We learn that if a child is too big, it is wrong. And that we should start controlling. And if 
a child is too little, we should start pressuring too, because both extremes are unhealthy, quote unquote. So yes, I see it a lot. Moms of a big kid, of a big baby, start getting fearful about that. And well, doctors reinforce us because they learn that maybe 85th percentile is not healthy and that it's obesity and that they should control their babies so they're not obese mm-hmm. and they slim down since an early age. So obviously that's what, and I mean, parents learn that. Parents, if they have lived in the Western <laughs> hemisphere, they learn this. They learn that they cannot trust their bodies and that they have to control what they eat. So what the doctor tells them makes sense and they start controlling their children from a very early age. And obviously it backfires. When a baby learns that she or he's not gonna have enough to eat, the first thing that he learns to do is to overeat. Right. And Um, I'm seeing a lot of, um, also seeing a lot of um, what's presenting as pickiness Um, So I see preoccupation Mm -hmm. with food in my practice for sure with kids, but also this pickiness, which I just sort of see growing in kids that are forced to eat foods that are beyond their developmental capabilities. So this growing belief in the wellness and nutrition culture, culture that kids should be able to eat all kinds of really adult foods very early and very easily and very regularly. Um, yeah, are, do, are you seeing, do you see this as well? It's my bread and butter. <laughs> right. Every single day I get a mom that comes saying, my child is very picky. He or she is not eating anything. And yes, I think this comes because we don't understand what is normal eating behavior Yeah. from a child or from an adult. And we think that eating healthy is swallowing fruits and vegetables. <laughs> And out of this fear also, it is why, because, the, because of the fear, children become picky. Because parents start pressuring from a very early age. And they start feeding with fear. That is what I see. It's like the first time they offer broccoli, it's like, oh my God, you're not going to like this and you have to eat it. And if the baby just goes like, okay, here it is. I have to force you and... So feeling like fear is imbued right from like that day one of feeding. Exactly. That's what I have found. And as I'm telling you, doctors don't usually help. Right. Right. Yes. Yeah. And I, and I remember reading um, a study in intuitive eating the book ages ago, and it was so um, enlightening because it talked about the issues with childhood feeding when children are pressured you know, the amount of the food that they eat, there's pressure involved on that, but also with the type of food that they eat. And also if it's not even overtly stated, if it's just felt like the fact that kids can feel when the parents are not just feeding them without attachment to the outcome, when they're feeding them with a very specific outcome in mind, and there's pressure there, like, like without even the parent having to say it, kind of, which I think is what you're saying. They can feel it like, oh, you're trying to, you're not just offering broccoli as an option. You're trying to get it 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 into me. Right. Yes. And you know what? Yesterday was very interesting because a very dear friend of mine, she has a baby 
girl, she's seven months, and everything was going fine. Her, ba her baby is just happy to play with food, but even not that much. <laughs> and last week, her doctor told her she's falling below the curve. Right. And you're doing things wrong, and you have to do this, and you have to do that. So knowing what she knows, like she says, okay, I'm going to wait to talk to Rebecca. But oh, she said, good. this week, I was so fearful she didn't eat anything. Mm -hmm. She ate less than she was eating. Because the mom, said, was, like, I, mom was so fearful. I didn't do anything. Oh. Like she was not pressuring her, but I was fearful. She said oh, my gosh, yeah. yesterday. And oh. yes, because she said, okay, before, yes, she was playing with the spoon and she was eating a little. But this week, honestly, I have been feeling so frustrated and so sad about myself. She was feeling bad because she thought she was failing as a parent. I looked through the curve and she's just a little girl. I mean, that is something very important. Normal growth is consistent growth. It's not that a baby has to be on the 50% or something like that. That's such a, it's such a key point that um, I think our parents need to hear. I know I've talked about it on the podcast before, but this idea that reading growth curves appropriately is really key. And if a parent comes to me and says, you know, my kid's way off the growth curve or way below, number one, I can't tell by looking at them. And number two, um, I can only tell by looking, by reevaluating that growth curve because they often get misread or misunderstood. And like you said, it's about consistency, not what place you're at on that curve, right? Exactly. This little girl, she's not even that little. She's around the 50%, 15%. Right, right. Like someone's got to be there. Been consistent. She has been consistent she's, since she was born. She's right. only seven months. And with growth curves, it is very important to consider a couple of things. First important thing is consistent growth. If you tell me today my child is seven months and he waits and his length is so-and-so, I cannot tell you anything. Right. We have to look through his, through his growth history. And something else that's very important is that growth is not as continuous as we think. So even if a child deviates a little bit from his or her tendency, that does not mean that it's failure to thrive or something like that. You actually need at least three measurements, one or two months apart with older children to know if there is something wrong. And even if there is something wrong, the answer is never pressuring or restricting. Yeah. You have to look at feeding dynamics, as Alin Satter explained. And the answer is always there in the feeding dynamics. Yeah, the, that was one of the most uh, kind of shocking in a good way or enlightening articles that I read through the affiliate program with Ellen. I think it was the affiliate or the associate. I'm sure it was the affiliate program. Anyway, it doesn't matter. But it was about growth. And then from like seven through those teen years and the fact that growth is so can be so nonlinear. And it makes exactly. sense because our children, children's develop is not super linear we know that when we look at that like the way that they learn to speak and walk they have you know just periods where nothing it seems like nothing is happening and then periods where they seem to be in fast forward just through coming out of this covid period not having seen a, a ton of my children's friends for a few months and i just see them i'm like 
oh my gosh, like they just seem to have sprouted up a foot since I saw them last, you know? And yet it's always so interesting to me that we can recognize the humanity in people when it comes to so many things. But when it comes to food and weight, we immediately revert back to like, we're robots. It's mathematics. It's, it should be exactly like this, specific, linear, you know, this in, this out, growth like this. Like, it's just such an interesting mental block that seems to happen over and over and over again. Definitely. Yes. As you said, we're human beings. We're not in a statistic. (laughs) Yeah. And so how do you talk parents through, or how do you work with parents who come to you, they're in that place of fear, whether because they think their child is too small or they think their child is too large. What's your approach that's really different from probably what you learned in nutrition school? Um, And can you just take us through that, how you work people through it? Completely. Okay. So as you know, I work with the Satter's Division of Responsibility. So what, what I do is that I look into the feeding relationship. What is going on? according to the division of responsibility. And from there is from where I guess my answers and parents will start getting their answers. So I like to begin to explain in them the division of responsibility. And well, as you know, it's gold standard by the American Academy of Pediatrics. So if a parent does this, everything is going to flow and everything is going to go well. When they follow so, that division of responsibility. Exactly. Yeah. And when you think about the division of responsibility as a double yellow line, if you cross it, there are going to be huge accidents. <laughs> but if everybody stays on their lane, everything is going to be perfect. So parents have three responsibilities and children have responsibilities too. I begin with parents' responsibilities. Parents are responsible for the when children eat which means they should have a schedule a mealtime schedule that includes main meals and snacks and they should be mindful that outside these meal times their children are only drinking water or breast milk or formula below one i mean mm-hmm. under one mm-hmm. okay so this part is really important because a lot of parents come to me and they say my child, my, my child is eating all the time. Okay. <laughs> it doesn't mean that you have to tell him how many cookies to eat. It means that you need a structure. Right. Yes. A lot of parents come to me with that concern and that's something typical. So when we start looking at the division of responsibility, all of a sudden everything starts making sense for them too. <laughs> okay. A schedule for me is pretty important. Second responsibility goes along with the schedule is the where. Parents are responsible for where their children eat. And as I always say, as any other human being, they should eat at a table (laughs) with no no distractions and with their family. And of course, by family, I mean a loving adult that can sit with them and share the meal because mom and dad are not always going to be together. Or, mm-hmm. But there's always going to be somebody, the nanny, or, well, if they go to school, a teacher or an aunt or grandma that's taking care of them, okay? So this part of the when, of the where, I'm sorry, it's key, okay? If you want your 
child to learn to eat broccoli, you have to eat the broccoli. <laughs> and you have to sit down and share it at the family meal. Family meal is fundamental for teaching children how to eat and to love food. And when I'm talking about a family meal, snacks count. <laughs> right. That's very important because sometimes parents go like, yes, of course, we always sit down and that's only for dinner. <laughs> the rest of the day, the child is just picking up what he wants, where he wants, and when he wants it. Mm -hmm. So uh, a snack should be also a family meal, as I'm saying. There's always going to be somebody with the child. So it's very important to sit down and eat. And the third responsibility is the what. Parents are responsible of the what to offer. <laughs> okay, so parents take leadership. That is the word that I like to use. Parents are leaders on the what to offer. And they should always um, do, they should always be considerate without catering. And by that, I mean that, I don't know, like if you say, I like to have salmon for dinner with broccoli, that's perfect. You lead and you offer that, but if your little girl's not that fond of salmon, but you know she loves potatoes, that makes a good side dish to salmon, and you can offer that. Okay. Yeah, I love that. I love that statement. I think it's such a powerful one. Consider it, like considering your kids without catering. So making sure there's always something on the table that feels safe and good for them while expanding their horizons with different foods, you know, doing both of those things. Exactly. If you only offer what they eat, they're not going to learn. Right. Okay. And on serving the table, it's really always very important to serve family style. Do not plate. <laughs> so you are not going to plate the salmon directly in the potatoes. If you serve that, you serve it family style and your child is going to choose. And if she or he only chooses potatoes for a while is fine but you're sharing a family meal in a nice environment and you are leading by example and i try to remind parents of that that i think can be such a tricky sticky moment for parents you know when they say ellen says like you need to have a steady nerve to really yes. implement the division of responsibility <laughs> to see a child only pick potatoes night after night can be a lot. But I try to remind parents that our kids learn in many different ways. They learn how to eat, not just by putting food in their mouth and swallowing. They learn by being in the proximity of that food, seeing it, watching you eat it and really enjoy it. I mean, this is both of my girls eat salad now. I mean, it's not, it hasn't been linear. It's, it's sometimes they eat a lot. Sometimes they reject it completely, but they both love salad, but there have just been so many moments of like them seeing us eating it and enjoying it and really liking it, not doing it just because we have to do it or we should do it, but really liking it and, and watching their little eyes watch us and then slowly try one leaf and spit it out <laughs> and then over the yes. years they are developing into children who naturally genuinely enjoy 
I mean, that's just one example. I could eat sweet potatoes or the same. There's so many foods that have been the same. Um, but just reminding parents that like, there are all of these steps along the way to learning to like food that involves just looking at it, smelling it, playing with it on their plate just a little bit, exactly. putting it in their mouth, spitting it out, you know, till eventually they swallow it. And they like it. <laughs> and they like it. But then the, the, six months later, they don't like it, but then they like it again. You know, like exactly. it's just that nonlinear human process right and if you think about it we are the same yeah yeah we I often... have our pickiness and we go like sometimes we love tomatoes and we eat a lot of tomatoes and then don't come to me with any tomato anymore there are so many That's foods that I will I'll do that with parents too um sort of say just list off a handful of foods that you refuse to eat as a child that you love now you know, and when did you start really liking that food? And I think it's always really kind of um, like an aha moment to be like, oh, I really didn't start liking that till I was like 20 or 21, you know? Right. Yeah. But if there's pressure, you're not going to like it ever. I can right. assure you that. Right. right. And children learn like that. I had um, a little girl that I was working with her mom will put everything family style and she will get excited. She will say, I want this, I want this, I want this. And she put everything on her plate and just ate the rice. <laughs> <laughs> but she was excited about it. But she was excited about it. And after a while, she started putting things in her mouth and spitting them out. <laughs> yeah. And she, a lot of stuff, but she always will tell her mom, I want everything like she, Yeah. I want to put this on my plate and this and this. I'm going to eat so everything. Cute. So cute. So, so from there, because you kind of finished up the parent side of responsibility, yes. which was like the it's structure and where they eat and what they eat. And then what's the child's responsibility? Very important. The child is responsible for the weather or not to eat when parents offer food. So the parents should have um, the schedule. <laughs> And the parents should always offer mealtimes at the table. And the child has the choice to refuse <laughs> to eat. Mm -hmm. Okay. It's important for parents always to respect that decision. Okay. It is important also to teach children to stay at the table for a little while if they don't want to eat. Because we don't go to the table only for eating. We go there for sharing. Oh, such, such a good point. Yeah. Okay. Obviously, make it according to the, their developmental readiness. Right. You're not going to keep a one-year-old at the table for more than two minutes. Mm -hmm. You can say, okay, perfect. I understand you don't want to eat. I'm going to tell you a little story. And then, I don't know, you can tell the little baby a story or sing a song and say, okay, now you can go. Yeah. <laughs> or I can take you off your high chair and you can sit with me if you don't want to eat. But start teaching them to stay at least for a little while at the table. Mm -hmm. Older children can stay for five, ten minutes. Mm -hmm. But it's important to make a point that it's not only about the food. Right, right. So they decide whether or not to eat. And then what, one of the things that's come up several times, and I'm just really interested to hear how you manage it, is when kids get into that kind of like four, five, six, so they're eating out of the house, right? They're, mm -hmm. they're eating at daycare or at kindergarten at school. Um, they're coming home. It's dinner time. They decide not to eat. So they choose not to eat. And then 
at bedtime or in the middle of the night, they're waking up hungry and kind of demanding food. And the parent's like, I don't know what to do with this. Uh, I'm just interested to hear how you manage that. Okay. I usually track back on the right. day. Okay. It's very important to see what is going on with the division of responsibility the rest of the day. Okay. So I track back. Are you keeping regular schedules? Are you keeping family meals? Um, if the child is at daycare, usually it's more structured. Right. So that is a plus. So I start looking into that. Okay. And then what I will look into is dinner time versus bedtime. Okay. If you're offering dinner, I don't know, like around 5 p.m. when the child gets back from daycare or kindergarten, and then they go to bed at 8 or a little bit later, yeah it makes sense to offer a snack <laughs> right right like if they're going to bed at eight and they had dinner at five it makes sense to offer like a nighttime snack around seven or eight p.m not too close to bedtime because that's gonna keep them up but you can set an instructor snack yeah yeah that's exactly what i do okay that's great to hear i do the same thing track back see what the feeding looks like through the day and then totally assess whether whether or not maybe parents push dinner back a little bit to a point where they're a little bit more hungry and then it's yes. more appropriately timed for bed or adding in that snack depending on the family's schedule and even it's because maybe if they're coming from daycare and they just had a snack at daycare and then you're offering dinner i have had those cases it is yeah. too close and kids are not hungry but mm -hmm. if you push it a little bit or okay, offer dinner and then offer a snack. Got it, great. But the most important thing I think is to track back mm -hmm. and see what's going on with the division of responsibility as a whole. Yeah, so that's such a great um, like foundation of feeding children. Um, I'm wondering if we could hone in just a little bit because the series is specifically geared toward some health conditions. And one of the biggest worries, not that children that are too small aren't a worry, but I feel like it's a different kind of worry than children who are quote unquote too big. Um, I feel like weight, fat, health, they have this, they're, they're just like really tangled up. And then division of responsibility gets particularly hard because the parents' history and the parents' fears and the parents' worries um, from their own personal history and experience, as well as what's going on with the child, it all gets kind of mixed up. So I'm wondering if you could just talk a little bit about helping without harming when it comes to kids who are skewing on the upper end of that, that growth curve. Okay, well, first I want to touch on the second responsibility for the child. Oh yeah, sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> That's okay. Um, it's the whether or not to eat and the what to eat that we touched upon that a little bit. So the what to eat when, from what parents offer and how much. How much, absolutely, right. So parents- okay. so I'm sorry, I said are... the what to eat. I mean, children don't choose what to eat from them. I mean, they don't choose the menu, but they choose what to eat from what the parent offers and how much. Right, so parents are setting the structure, getting the kids to the table, serving it up family style and choosing what to put on the table while being considerate of kids. And then children are allowed to choose whether they eat and how much they eat. How much they eat, exactly, right. from what the parents right. offered. Mm -hmm. Right, beautiful. And so to address your question, 
Okay. I always, the same thing. I always go towards the division of responsibility. That's from when I start. And from this, parents can start seeing what has been going on that is not necessarily due because their children are eating too much sugar or too much this or too much that. If you go back to the division of responsibilities, parents can start seeing little things that they have been doing that may have been promoting their child or their child's weight to accelerate, okay? And I have to be clear on this. As I said, normal weight is consistent growth, okay? There can be moments in which weight accelerates, okay? That is when a child crosses two or three percent of lines up. On okay? the growth curve, right. On the growth curve. And as I said, restriction is never the answer. You always have to look, well, first, if there's some kind of pathology, perhaps, that you have to look into that and then go to the feeding dynamics. Yeah, I just want to, can I stop you for just one sec? Because I think this is such a huge point and it's something that actually um, was really big for me when I started working with Ellen. I think that I was so, for so long, I was... um, really adamant about getting away from like diet mentality and that negative, the really negative connotations around weight and fat that I kind of forgot that even though weight needn't be the primary indicator of health, that it can be a marker of health, especially if it's unstable, right? And especially like Ellen was just able to remind me that in children, if weight is really decelerating or accelerating, like when we really, we re-examine those growth curves, we look at them through the lens of just like consistency versus not. And we see accelerating weight. It, you know, there are some kids who naturally genetically end up at high ends of that growth curve and it's normal for them. And we need to be able to identify that, but we also need to be able to identify when there's something off, because it can be a sign. It was just such an aha when Ellen said, it can be one of the first signs of children's emotional and social health, something being off there. And I was like, whoa, we can really miss things, whether it's physiological or it's emotional. When it comes to children, if we just decide to write weight off and decide that talking about weight in any way is problematic. Anyway, I just thought, I think you kind of were saying that, but I just, it was a big thing for me to remember that we can explore and, and consider weight without pathologizing it right away or demonizing it. And like you said, the solution's never restriction anyway. So whether it's normal or not normal, right? Yeah. Exactly. And as you said that it's really important to look with the parents through the growth, through the growth curve it's really important to look through it because then you can say, okay, what started going on in the moment that weight went up? And you can start getting clues. Perhaps something happened in the family. A close, a close person died or there was, they moved or changed the schools. There might have been something that happened there. And then you also look through feeding dynamics, what started happening. Sometimes I find that when the weight started going higher and higher up is when parents started restricting. Yeah, yeah, that's a common, that's a common pattern, right? So they get worried 
And instead of looking at the relationship with food and just focusing on that and keeping it consistent, they decide, oh, it's the sugar that's doing it. Even if it's a normal weight for that child. Oh, it's the, the carbs, carbs that are doing it. Yeah, and the bread. And they start restricting and all of a sudden the child is out of control, sneaking food and eating more. And there is when you see the growth curve going up. Right. And that helps parents a lot to make sense of things. To see that, to see the actual objective, like here's where things actually started to accelerate. You started restricting. Exactly. Yeah. And you can also see that perhaps at one point, yes, the child went down, but the child went below from his tendency. Right. And then it accelerates and it yeah. goes right. even higher up. Right. And usually parents can point to a point of restriction there. Yeah. And often that's encouraged, right? Whether it's medical or um, from a dietitian or a naturopath or um, sometimes just from their own internal fears and worries and concerns. Exactly. I know like working with, with parents that are fearful this way, it's hard. But if you looking at the growth curves with them, it's a great tool. Right. Because they can get feedback to what has happened to the child's growth according to what they have done. Mm -hmm. And I think it's usually when there has been a restriction, you can see an acceleration afterwards. Mm -hmm. And how long does it typically take, like when you're working with parents, if they really get on track with the division of responsibility and this is really where they focus, um, is there a, a timeline or is there not where you start to see things even out or normalize? Okay, there's never a timeline because every child is different. But if parents trust, children come along faster. Right. Okay, right. I always see this. If parents have trouble trusting, as you said, kids smell it. They smell it, yeah. yeah. Yes, they yeah. know. And there are going to be little things that they're not trusting. Perhaps, okay, yes, I'm letting you eat. But, you know, um, this maple syrup, it's only one tablespoon. <laughs> and those little things... Or ketchup. Yeah. Ketchup is such a big one with me and, and in the work I do with kids, it comes up all the time. Like like really trusting, but then restricting ketchup. I just always find it so interesting. Yes, those little things are the ones that keep affecting children. But if parents set the division of responsibility, children come along. And I'm saying children come along in a way that they learn to eat as much or as little as they need and a child that was perhaps binging will stop binging and will stop sneaking food. I'm not saying that a child will come along in lowering on the growth curve. Right. Because right. that is not our goal. Yeah. Yeah. The child can stabilize, perhaps, and weight can stop accelerating. But mm -hmm. I'm not talking that a child will come down the growth curve. Because if it's not his or her nature, that's not our goal. Right. The goal is not a weight, a weight goal or a weight outcome. It's a normalization exactly. of, of growth and, and like a consistency of growth and a normalization and of the feeding most relationship. And of eating competence, as I eating said. Eating competence, yeah. This uh, comes up from Ellen Satter. It's really important. And I would like to explain it to you a little bit more. Well, I know you know it. No, no, please. I mean, But for those of us, for those that are listening to us, um, eating competence actually has four domains, okay? And the first domain is a positive attitude towards food. Mm -hmm. And that is not just like, okay, I'm going to eat this. I'm going to be happy and tomorrow I'm going to detox or start a diet. 
is really like trusting yourself to eat what you like and being calm and relaxed about it okay that is having a positive attitude towards food the second one is um, self-regulation trusting yourself to know when to eat and how much to eat and the third one um, ellen calls it contextual skills which means being mindful of feeding yourself faithfully as ellen satter calls it like having a schedule for yourself if you're an adult <laughs> being mindful of providing for yourself and sitting down and tuning in with your food when you eat okay so how does this look for a child okay for a child it looks um, as being positive around food not being anxious or binging or hiding food oh i forgot the fourth domain i'm so sorry i mentioned three domains and the fourth domain is variety that's very important and variety doesn't come for forcing right. when you are feeding yourself faithfully and tuning in with your food you can trust yourself to sort of regulate and you have a positive attitude towards food variety just comes as natural mm -hmm. variety seeking behavior comes as natural mm -hmm. i love that variety seeking behavior kids mm -hmm. grow into that and it's natural kids do yes yeah. Yeah. So for a challenge to have a, a positive attitude towards food, to have a positive attitude towards mealtimes, <laughs> it's a eating competent child is a child that goes to the table and enjoys it, whether or not she or he eats, and independent of what they eat. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. And in a child, well, self-regulation is for a child to learn to eat as much as, or as little as she needs and to have a variety seeking behavior. As you say, it can look as putting everything on my plate and not eating. <laughs> yeah. Trying things and it's I love them, that kid. Yeah. <laughs> or liking things and then not liking them. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm so so I'm so interested to hear because you're in a different country and it's a you know a different culture. Um what kinds of objections or resistance you've gotten to like other nutritionists, dietitians, medical doctors, um, because you've chosen to work this way, because you've chosen to work. I know, I mean, I know that it's this gold standard and yet it still feels very fringe in a lot of ways. Like it feels alternative in some way to be working from a trust model. And so I'm just wondering with where you are in the world, um, do you get resistance? Do you get objections from others in your, either in your field or in other surrounding health fields? Well, I think it's like everywhere is the same objections. We learn not to trust. Right. And for me, that's the very sad part. So doctors, if I tell them, like, let the children choose, they're like, what? <laughs> because we come from a deficit view. Mm -hmm. We still think that our bodies are bad. Mm -hmm. And as I always say, it's like we learned that we are programmed for self-destruction or something like that. Yeah. And actually, our bodies are meant for thriving. Right. And they and, do it very well. And, and what gets tied in with that distrust, I would say, 
Um, there's also within my field, definitely, there's this layer of like, well, yes, children could be trusted around food if there weren't candies and sodas and chips and all of these, like, like around those children can't be trusted though, right? Like that's another kind of like big objection that I hear a lot. And I would just love for you to talk a little bit about oh, that. Oh, I love talking about that. Thank you yeah. for pointing it out. Okay. Actually, um, Leanne Birch, do you know her? The yes. Researcher. The researcher. Mm -hmm. Yes. She did a lot of studies during the 1980s, 1990s, and even early 2000s about this. And she proved that we can be trusted around candy. Mm. She has um, a lot of interesting studies. I'm going to comment on one. I can send you the reference. I would love but that. Yeah. On this study, um, they had preschoolers and adults, average age of 35, I think. And they gave them, a, they gave children and adults a snack, and then they gave them a lunch at libitum. That means that they could eat as much as they wanted for lunch. So the snack just had one trick. <laughs> it was a 40 calorie potting one day. And the other day, the real potting, 150 calorie potting. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So they give this potting to children and adults as a snack, and then they give them lunch. And what happened? Children compensated perfectly. Of course, they didn't know like when potting has le had less calories, but for lunch, children ate less. Yeah. Can adults I? Adults ate the same thing. Oh, they did. Yeah. Or I was gonna say, if they knew, I would almost assume that inverse, you know, that like reverse relationship that happens when adults are like, well, I already blew it. So I might as well eat more, but I guess they didn't know what the, what they didn't the know. And they was. ate the same, <laughs> but kids, but kids mod, like moderated themselves or, or compensated perfectly. Kids compensated perfectly. At the end, their total calorie intake was the same. Adults yeah. know they overate the day when they had the normal, yeah. regular, non like, 100% fat sugar potting. Yeah. Yeah. Probably because um, they're just not, I would assume that's just because of a lack of like um, inner attunement and sort of, you know. We are not attuned with us anymore, with our bodies. Mm -hmm. Children mm -hmm. are. And if we allow them, they can keep that. Right. And it's, right. And I wanted to talk to you about another study from the Birch. Oh, yeah. I can tell you uh, a little bit about it. Of course, I don't remember the details, uh, but this one was done. Uh, also, I think it was a potting or a yogurt. And when they found out, of course, like if children had um, their favorite uh, flavor, which was usually chocolate, I think, okay, they will eat a lot of it <laughs> because it was their favorite. But after a while with cessation, they could see that the children started eating less. And in a condition where they had eaten before giving them their favorite pudding or yogurt, I don't remember what was it, mm -hmm. they ate less. Mm -hmm. So when they're they well fed and it's not restricted, it's, it's readily and regularly available, they, they easily manage themselves. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's amazing. That's beautiful. Yeah, if you have those references, that would be great because I could put them in the I show will send notes them maybe. To you. Mm -hmm. That would be yes. so good. So any last big kind of like big thoughts or overarching lessons that you've learned from working with kids, weight, health, growth, 
from a trusting place, like any just sort of like, you know, big lessons, any last thoughts? My big lessons is that our bodies are wonderful. <laughs> and my clients, children that I work with, like keep showing it to me. When I teach um, their parents to trust them, they thrive and they do great. They learn to eat, they grow according to their nature, and they're just wonderful. And they show me how wonderful everybody's body is and how all of us can trust ourselves. And that when, when we are attuned with our bodies, it's when we thrive and we bloom. That's amazing. Of going against, yeah. When we stop going against our bodies, everything blooms. That's mm-hmm. what I've seen. So good. So good. Well, Rebecca, thank you. Our time is up, so I'm going to free you up now. But thank you so much for taking the time to come on the show and to talk to us about the work that you do. Um, yeah, it's just really incredible to listen to. Thank you so much, Jillian. I love talking to you. Thank mm-hmm. you. Well, that was a beautiful end to an episode. I loved speaking with Rebecca. Uh, I loved working with her when I was in the affiliate program, and it was just a joy to get to sit down and talk with her again. Things that really stood out to me, things that I've heard before, but somehow when Rebecca was talking about it, just really popped um, popped out, stood out at me, or, or just cemented in a different way for me in my brain. Um, it was just the remembering that current conventional nutrition really operates from a deficit. It, the belief that the the body is just completely unable to be trusted or to make good decisions. And that the alternative, what we're suggesting is a competence model that's so much more filled with trust and joy and flexibility and ease And then when she brings in the studies to prove that we can manage ourselves, you know, we can manage ourselves even in the presence of sugary, fatty foods, that variety seeking is natural, that we grow into competent eaters when we are left alone, when we are, and and left alone is not really quite the right term because clearly um, from listening to this episode, you know that parents are involved. They are setting the structure and making many decisions when it comes to feeding. But when children are left alone within that structure, they grow according to their nature. They become joyful, competent eaters, and mealtime is just so much more enjoyable. Um, and the health, the health benefits of having a competent relationship with food are, I think, immeasurable. I think it is absolutely immeasurable and not to be underestimated for one moment, the health benefit of having a positive, um, trusting relationship with your body and food as you grow. So thank you so much to Rebecca for that. You can find her on the Ellen Satter website. um, And I've linked to the studies in the show notes if you're interested in taking a look at those. Uh, Until next time, have a wonderful day.